Howdy and welcome to Grassroots. Uh, my name is Chris Peters, and I am with the editor of the Stillwater News Press, Bo Simmons. Hello. And today our guest is Trish Ranson, representative for House District 34 here in Oklahoma, Stillwater. Welcome. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. <laughs> uh, so the goal of uh, this is to kind of get to know you as a person or as a our former co-host, Michelle Charles, would take it to know you as a human. Mm, that's so good. <laughs> so to get started here, what brought you to Stillwater? Oh, my goodness. That is a loaded question right there. <laughs> uh, the short answer is my parents. They're the ones that brought me to Stillwater. Uh, the long answer is I was raised in Ponca City. And um, so they were still living in Ponca City at the time. Went, uh, left Pohai when I graduated and uh, got my undergrad at Wichita State University. And after I got my undergrad degree in music education, I moved to Connecticut because my sister was living out there. She needed some help with her kids. And I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do in life. Um, if I wanted to jump right into teaching, or if I wanted to kind of get to know the world a little bit better. So I, I took the opportunity and I moved to Connecticut. And it was there that I met my husband. Okay. And my husband, Andrew, uh, he was living in Stamford, Connecticut at the time, and we met in a show. So that's another story that I'll tell you about later. But okay. uh, we met in a show. He's a, he's a tenor, operatic tenor. And um, so he was the lead and I was in the chorus. And after the show wrapped up, we started dating. That was 25 years ago this year. Uh, just not that long ago. I know. It's like a blink of an eye and yet an eternity all in itself. So um, we uh, had two children. Uh, Will and Jenna were born in Stamford, and then in 2003, my father had some health issues. He needed back surgery because he was having a lot of pain, and um, then uh, when he came out of the surgery, he had a heart attack oh, in no. recovery, yeah, and they did some tests and realized they needed to do open-heart surgery on him, so a week later, they flipped him over, so, you know, he's yeah. recovering on his belly. Uh, from his back surgery, and then they flipped him over and did open heart surgery, which was five bypasses. And that was the wake-up call. That was the, mm -hmm. my children do not know their grandparents, and we need to move back to Oklahoma. So we moved here um, to Stillwater in particular for a couple of reasons. Number one, we wanted to live in a college town. Because okay. one of the things about college towns is, you know, education is First and foremost, their focus. There is access to the arts. Uh, my husband was singing full time at the time, and so he needed access to an airport because that's okay. pretty much when you're an opera singer, that's how you commute. And so um, okay. we had Tulsa, Wichita, and Oklahoma City, three airports that he could choose from. And now we have four because yeah. of the Stillwater Airport, but he does not sing full-time anymore. Fly swoe. There you go. <laughs> so we uh, moved to Stillwater, and in 2003, I started working at Westwood Elementary that year, and um, it's 40-minute trip up to Ponca City, so we spent uh, 12 years making weekend trips every weekend to Ponca City. 12. 12 hmm. years, checking on my parents, doing whatever was needed. Um, it went from visiting, you know, just kind of, you know, that kind of thing, to uh, my mother then was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so then it was, okay, um, helping with shopping, helping mm -hmm. with laundry, helping with house cleaning, um, all of those things, to cooking. And then it, it transitioned into, they moved into an assisted living facility in Ponca. So then it was back to visiting again, yeah. um, but also advocating for them. And so um, they passed away about seven years ago, um, just a couple of months away from each other. So, wow. That's, and that's, that's what brought me to Stillwater. That's the long answer. <laughs> but it affirms your decision to move and make the choice oh, to absolutely. come back and have that time with them. I think about yeah. one of the, the decisions that I've made in my lifetime, and that is one of those decisions that I would not do it like change my decision that was a such a valuable and wonderful experience to see my children uh, 
grow into a relationship with their grandparents mm-hmm. in their final years. That was lovely. It's it's amazing. So one of my uh, tasks at the news press is I place the obits, mm-hmm. and it is uh, there's been quite a few times uh, where put two people in and they were married and and they've you know they mm-hmm. passed just like weeks or months apart yeah it's actually more common than you think yeah there were several uh couples in the assisted living place where um my parents were that that was the exact same thing that happened to them and yeah. i mean if you're gonna like leave this world mm-hmm. and, and with the person that you've been with for decades or whatever i mean yeah not leaving not not being alone i don't know my parents were married um I, 55 years I mean it's there's that's a way of life you Mm -hmm. it's hard to rally after that yeah that makes sense okay so what does Trish Ranson do in her free time (laughs) that would be if Trish Ranson had free time oh okay what would she like to do if she had free time oh if she had free time she would love to get in her car and drive um, that is my idea of peace is just getting in the car and driving on the open road, turning the radio up full blast, classic rock or bluegrass, one of the two, and then just, just going. So then you probably don't mind the commute to Oklahoma city. I don't actually, at first I thought it was going to be tough. Um, and, and some days it is, especially when I know what's on the agenda for the day, there mm-hmm. are times where I'm like, Oh, can I just turn around? But, um, otherwise or drive the opposite direction. <laughs> but, um, no, I really enjoy the, the open road. Um, and you know, we have, there's a bluegrass festival in Winfield, mm-hmm. Kansas every mm-hmm. September and I have been going to that bluegrass festival every year since um, I moved to Oklahoma. And it's one of those times where um, it's like an alternate universe where, <laughs> you know, you're walking along and you see someone. People make eye contact, which in my world, I make eye, eye contact all the time. But it's amazing how many people don't. And so to be in this place where people make eye contact and they say hello to you and they don't know you. They just say hello. It's mm-hmm. like, wow. And the camping on the fairgrounds, the the folks that have been camping there have been camping for years. Like, and so they have a spot. It's like worse than the the your spot at church in the pew. I mean, they have a spot, and which is kind of nice because you go there every year, and it's it's completely different because it's a new year. But yet there's some constancy that, oh, okay, the crab camp is there or, oh, the banjo camp is there and, oh, you know, all of that. And you you know where everybody is. And I camp with a family um, from Winfield who is, uh, they're related to my college roommate's sister-in-law. So like very loose connection here, (laughs) but um, they are my Winfield family. And um, I have been camping with them for years and it's... It's nice to see them all again and have kind of like this this welcome homecoming. Um, and this year I was able to go, but for only 24 hours. Well, is this something you get your whole immediate family to do? Or you... It depends on the year. Um, this Kinda... year it was just me. Uh, some years okay. it's just me. But uh, some years, you know, the kids go with me or when, when they were littler or um, my, uh, husband would come up for a couple of days and he would bring the kids. And so it just depends on the year, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a beautiful place. So when I think about that, I'm thinking, I think about, okay, like where would Trish want to be? Mm-hmm. Trish would want to be in Winfield, Kansas at the Bluegrass Festival and just have music surrounding her all around, you know, 360 degrees and just, wow, it's wonderful. So is this like, Tent camping or glamping or car camping? <laughs> it's tent camping for me. Um, the family members, my Winfield family has uh, a few RVs that they they kind of corral up together and we have a little courtyard in the middle of it. But uh, it's tent camping for me. And, and the older I get, the harder it is to <laughs> tent camp. <laughs> So or the I've thicker been, that air mattress gets. Exactly. So I've been th- I've been looking. I'm like, okay, honey, we need to get a 
trailer. We need to, mm. you know, something small, just, you know, for two people, but, you know, we're empty nesting. That's great. And, you know, that we can pull behind maybe the CRV, you know, mm-hmm. something small. That would be awesome. And there then go. just go wherever we want to go and just camp wherever we want to camp. That would be mm-hmm. lovely. So I believe my first uh, interaction uh, with you mm-hmm. was actually in a car. So when I would drop my kids off to Westwood, one of your jobs was you were out there trying to direct traffic yes. for the drop-off line. And mm-hmm. when we had with the old Westwood building. Correct. And, you know, get parents to go through the little the little parking lot loop and stuff. And oh, yeah, out that there. was a dismissal. Yeah. Dismissal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that was, that's serious business. Mm-hmm. There is no cutting in line in elementary, <laughs> I'm just telling you. And uh, make sure that all the cars were following that rule mm-hmm. and um, getting them all in order. Because I would text the names to the teachers in the cafeteria. And then they would bring the kids out in order so that we could have them in the right spot. So for it the was right just car. like text messaging. I, f- I thought you guys might have had some sort of like fancy app or something like check them off. Nope. It was just. <laughs> nope. It was text messaging. Names. Okay. <laughs> That's where I got my um, my addiction to texting, actually, because it okay. was very clear, very easy, da 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 da, and then went from there. So <laughs> All right. those were the days. So music. Uh, music teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, what motivated you to leave that career and then oh, gosh. take on politics? That's another big question. <laughs> um, so short answer, teacher walkout. Mm-hmm. Long answer. So um, I taught music at Westwood Elementary for 15 years. And um, I had start slowly through that tenure become more and more of an advocate for music in public schools um, and just the the idea of community because one of the things that is is delightful and unique about Westwood is its community. And so um, I was a little bit different of a music teacher. I didn't do the the productions where you know we make costumes and we do sets and Every child gets to be on stage. Um, I, I wasn't that way. I was more the experiential type of teacher. So how do we get kids to make music? Mm-hmm. Um, and where can they fit themselves in to where they feel strongest? And not all kids are performers. And so um, this is a way for them to, to tap in where they can and also getting, how do I get the parents involved? So um, we had family folk dance nights um, twice a year. And it was where, you know, I taught the kids how to do the folk dances in class. And then when the parents came, their abilities were, were pretty close. Because I'd mm-hmm. prep the kids. The parents come in having no clue what we're doing and really unsure about themselves. I bet. Oh, yeah. Grownups don't like to do things that are new. <laughs> um, and... So then it was uh, to the kids. I'm like, you're going to help me teach your parents how to do these folk dances. And you would be surprised at how much joy and delight that brings children. Because children don't get to teach their grown-ups things very often. And this was one of them. And to see that interaction between adult and child was a beautiful thing. And um, pushing the adults a little bit past their comfort zone with, um, now that you've danced with your child, you're going to need to dance with someone else. <laughs> Ooh, that was a tough one too. Oh boy. And how to make eye contact, how to hold hands, all of those things. And um, but it's one of those those events that even now, years later, people will tell me that that's one of their fondest memories of either their elementary experience or their child's elementary experience. And so um, just building that community was something that um, was something I valued and I still value and I try to create community wherever I go. And in this role, that is something that I can do. Um, I am kind of a a bridge between different groups, individuals, agencies, um, and trying to make that connection between local and state government and so forth. But 
when I was starting to advocate and go forth, I started noticing just the frustrations that I was having, you know, in the sense that being a music teacher, I mean, your budget is the first thing that's cut because it's not like arts in general. When people arts in general, exactly, exactly. Education. It's like, well, you know, yeah. we need to focus on reading and math. And honestly, yes, reading and math are very important things to learn. But music enhances that. And we can deal with mathematical concepts. We can deal with reading concepts in the music classroom. And it's done in a way that can reinforce those without the child realizing Mm -hmm. that that's what's happening. And it's just fun to them. But it's actually reinforcing things that they're learning already. Um, And so just going through and realizing I had no budget I basically um, either bought it myself or I got busy figuring out, okay, PTA, would you do this for me? I want to do X, Y, and Z. I need these materials. PTA, will you help? Or Mm -hmm. um, Elite Repeat has these wonderful um, grant opportunities where I can purchase things for my classroom, submit the receipt, and they'll reimburse me, which that's a little known fact that more people need to know about elite repeat locally so between either spending your own money or asking for money you were yearly or even maybe monthly just advocating for your classroom all the time every day is advocating and you know and and the basic advocacy is what i do in the classroom with kids because they're the ones that go home and tell their parents and the parents are the ones who see it in the classroom they see it at Friday assembly they see it dismissal you know all of those things that's a constant advocacy and um so yeah it's it it was frustrating and then noticing that um what happens with my schedule as a music teacher um oftentimes classes have to be combined so Hmm. uh we were on a three-day rotation or a six-day rotation really but I saw the whole school in three days And, um, but yet we had four classrooms, a great level. So what would happen is I would have a class and a third every day. And so if you've got, you know, 20 kids, that's still pretty manageable to have a class and a third. When you've got more than 25, it's not. Um, And there was a point in time there my last year where I had 33 first graders in my classroom. And that was unsustainable, quite honestly. And um, I had to change a lot of what I do in first grade just to accommodate the number of bodies in my room, Mm -hmm. the number of bodies who um, flailing is their number one go to, you know, they just kind of they're all over the place because they're first graders. And um, so how do you monitor that? And how do you give a music and enriched experience to that child when there are so many to keep track of. So that's what I was suffering in my classroom was this this overexpanse of students and how do we do this? And then the teacher walkout came. And um, I'll tell you, I was very, very nervous about the teacher walkout and I was hesitant to go to the Capitol. Um, number one, because I figured, okay, well, um, you know, the, the state legislature is the enemy. Okay, number one. Okay, <laughs> they're the enemy. Why do I want to go there? I don't want to be around them. Yeah. And um, but number two, I also don't like huge crowds. Even for like a community building person, I don't like huge crowds because the only huge crowds that I really have a lot of uh, experience with would be sporting events. And there's a lot of testosterone that goes on in sporting events. And you know, whoo, things can be said. <laughs> tempers can be high. No. The other part of that people don't really talk about is in Oklahoma, legally, teachers can't strike. Correct. Um, and it's so you you are kind of putting your job on the line, too. Right. And you know, everyone was. I mean, it it felt like so, yeah, a little bit yeah. of a setup. So yeah. like, OK, are we really doing this in good faith or are, are we all going to lose our jobs? But then at the same time, mm-hmm. if we all lose our jobs, you're going to be really sunk. <laughs> I mean, so. <laughs> well, that's the yeah, that's right. kind of the play is like there has to be you know, some critical mass correct to be able to say, well, yeah, you can't fire us or you're not going to have, but there were external, you know, factors, you know, I mean, outside of sure. I mean, everyone who goes has, 
need their own reasons for going. But yeah, there are. Well, yeah. And that's what I learned when I got things. there. It was, it was not a anger type of thing. There was frustration. Absolutely. Um, but there was solidarity. And there's something in that, in that, I mean, that's a huge piece of community building is having that solidarity with one another, shared experience. And to be there with teachers from across the state that have, you know, they basically have similar educational backgrounds as mine. And then to see all of my music teacher friends from all across the state, I don't get to see them very often, except for maybe a couple of times a year at workshops. And to realize that I wasn't alone, that the things that I was suffering and the things that we are suffering at Stillwater Public Schools and Westwood, that's not unique. It's happening all across the state. And then talking to our legislators. I mean, we were in there. We were talking with the legislators. I mean, I talked with uh, Corey Williams, who is our rep at the time, Senator Duggar. I even talked with other representatives that weren't mine. Uh, Babinek, you know, he was 33 before John Talley. Um, and it was just fascinating to me, not all of them, but there were quite a few that were just completely shut off. Like, I don't know why you all are here. You don't understand how state government works. And you need to go back to your classroom where that's your place. So you so you tell the teacher they're not educated about mm-hmm. something. What might they do? <laughs> We got mad and I got like, okay, you know what? That's not right. I mean, the whole idea of representation at the state level is, is knowing the people that you represent and knowing the issues that are in your district and that are upsetting people or, you know, the, the successes of your, your district even. So I just felt like, you know what, there's, this is, we need more teachers in the legislature. And so um, I decided to run. So was that a switch that kind of flipped in your own head? Or was that a combination also of maybe some other people saying, hey, Trish, you should run? It was a combination, actually, because I had had posted something on Facebook and a friend of mine had said, Trish, if you ran, I'd vote for you. Of course, he lives in Kansas. (laughs) (laughs) But... But uh, at that point, and you'll have to do some inside baseball here because Corey had not termed out yet, Corey Williams. Correct. So he and he, he could have run again mm-hmm. and instead ran for uh, district attorney. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. How, did, how did you guys work that out? Well, that was, that was kind of like, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was wanting to run for district attorney and trying to decide if that is exactly what he was going to do mm-hmm. or not. But he didn't want to leave his seat open. So there needed to be someone to run for his seat. And so um, I'm like, I'll run. And so (laughs) there we go. How did your husband and kids feel? Oh, boy. that's They were very supportive. Absolutely. Um, But at the same time, we talked about, okay, what is this going to look like? And I'm a big proponent. I mean, at the elementary level, it's always like, what does it look like, sound like, feel like? Okay. And so I'm like, okay, if I ran for office, what is that going to look like, sound like, and feel like? So I uh, made a couple calls to, um, I mean, I'd already talked to Corey about it, but I made a call to Mayor Joyce. And I made a call to former mayor, uh, John Bartley, and just was like, tell me, tell me what running for office looks like and what are things that um, you didn't know about the process that you wish you knew before? And um, what is it like on the other side? And so they kind of talked me through it. And um, then I was at the Capitol and my best friend, she loves to tell this story over and over, but my best friend lives in Edmond. She uh, and I have been friends since we were babies. We grew up in Ponca City together. Our, our families were neighbors. And uh, she told me, I don't remember this because I think I was kind of like just in shock. But um, she says, I called her from the Capitol in line. I was in line to register to to file for office and I told her I said I'm running for state representative for house district 34 talk me out of it (laughs) (laughs) and she was like oh okay and then so she tried to throw some like these really outlandish softball ideas (laughs) and then um apparently I told her 
okay, that's not good enough. I'm doing it. She's like, oh, good, because you'd be really good. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, I'm trying to remember. I think, you know, even spurred by the walkout, quite a few teachers did run, but but not that many won. Well, right, we that, had, but you so, but you do have sort of an education kind of block, right? There, right? I right. Mean, you do have something. We had total of about yeah. ten legis- uh, educators that won uh, their seats, and that's on both sides of the aisle combined. Mm. Um, and right now, we have kind of a, a consortium of five former educator legislators on the Democratic side, where we um, we discuss everything education related so we read all the bills together we we try to we brainstorm ideas on legislation you know we attend committees if if one of us can't go one of us is going so we kind of just make sure that we have all that we have shared notes that we keep with each other and everything and it's really great because it's like that it's like that study group it's Mm -hmm. that teacher circle that you know we just make sure that is intact. So how does a, a group of five, or even we could expand it to all the Democrats in the House, uh, influence legislation as a super minority? Yeah, that's not much of a expansion there. We have 19 Democratic seats. And um, so it's a super minority is, is truth. And I think what's interesting is um, the knowledge of civics in our state is very, very low. And because it's just something that, that grownups don't think about. I mean, the number of conversations I've had with people who says, oh, I'm not political. You know, that doesn't affect me. Well, actually, (laughs) what you pay at the pump, yeah, that's decided at the state legislature. What you pay for groceries, yeah, that's decided at the state legislature. Um, How much you uh, pay at the toll, well, maybe that's not decided by the legislature. Maybe that's the turnpike authority. But um, still, it's it's very much uh, politics affect everyday life. So um, just the idea that we are a super minority. We do not control the House like the national level. We are the super minority. There are 82 Republicans in the House at the state level. Um But what is interesting, even though we are a super minority, even though we cannot necessarily sway a vote or keep it from a bill from passing, we can influence um, with bill authors and talk about, okay, with our questions. Um, the, The majority does not like to question each other on the microphone. The minority has no problem asking questions. And, you know, and I've, I've told representatives this myself. I'm like, hey, questions are my love language. If I'm not asking questions, then then I don't think your legislation is is worth my time, really. So I'm asking you questions because I, I need to and I should. And um, so it's through the questioning. It's through the debate. Um, but even back further, it's a, uh, hey, you know, you have this bill. And I like what it's doing, but there's one point that it's missing, and could we change that point? And sometimes it it changes, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and you know that's 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 how we affect things is just making sure that they hear us in some way, one shape, one way or another. Okay. Or I mean, have you ever seen any of yours? Or I'm sure people you know have something you bring up that sort of gets repackaged and then passed, you know, across the aisle. Oh, yes. You know, that constantly. So for instance, um, the governor is pushing right now. He wants inflation relief with ending the state portion of taxes on groceries. That was initially a Democratic idea. And we've been pushing that for a couple of years now and uh, the Republicans don't want to pick that up. And now all of a sudden the governor wants it and the Republicans still don't want to pick that up. And now it's like a bargaining <laughs> chip or something. Yeah. But yeah, that happens right. all the time. And but here's the thing: good legislation is good legislation, no matter where it comes from. But I think what frustrates me a lot about the supermajority is that there are those that do not feel like Democrats have any good ideas. They have the ideas and they're in control and they're gonna do it their way. 
But at the end of the day, I mean, we're there for the betterment of our state. So that means hearing multiple voices and a diversity of ideas and then making legislation that is sound in the midst of all of that. And that's sometimes what we see that is very, very much missing. Okay. So on the back on the campaign trail, you're now uh, running for your third term. Yes. Uh, what have you been hearing from uh, voters uh, and people in District 34? What, wow. What What are they hoping to see changed or... Their or, main concerns? Yeah. Their main concerns? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, you know, I knock doors, and um, it is a grueling work, um, especially when it's triple digits this summer, as it has been. Um, I thought maybe I would sweat off some of the session <laughs> weight. That didn't happen. But um, the what I'm hearing most, and I'm I'm knocking doors of Democrats, Independents, and Republicans. So, um, oh, and Libertarians too. I have Libertarians peppered in there as well. But what I'm hearing the most is that we need to just kind of ignore the far right and the far left and just meet in the middle and get things done. So I'm hearing that, number one, and that is kind of like a central theme. Number two, abortion comes up at the doorsteps. And the, the interesting thing about abortion coming up at the doorsteps right now is that it is not what I heard in 2020 and 2018. Um, now it is a uh, we need to make sure that uh, we overturn these bans on abortion in Oklahoma, that they this has gone too far. And when I knock doors of Republican men who tell me that their number one concern is women's reproductive rights, that's quite telling. Now, the state Republican Party, the national Republican Party, even our county Republican Party won't say that. I mean, because they're they're on to the pro-life abortion outlaw completely nationwide but there are people at their doorsteps that are not feeling that so way. So do you think there were all these people out there who just maybe never thought they'd see the the hammer drop on this Agreed. And, and now it's gone yeah. further than they And had I think we saw we saw that in Kansas yeah. when they voted yeah. to enshrine abortion care in the constitution. Um, because they the folks that believed that that was going to, you know, that that wasn't going to pass that that they would be able to institute an abortion ban in Kansas, um, realize that there are more people who want to make sure that women's rights are cared for, first and foremost, than not. And so I think we're seeing the same thing here in Oklahoma. Well, it's, it's also interesting because you talk about extremes and you talk about how it seems the regular folk you talk to are, are kind of tired of it. But an, an abortion might be a good example because four years ago, they were passing all these laws and you could just write it off as saying, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. It's un unconstitutional. It's not mm -hmm. going to fly. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, in, I think we were, we were talking about this before, um, you came on, we had our, I mean, <laughs> when you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put this not, not delicately because I don't care about that, but <laughs> I guess silly when you have, you know, we have people who write a lot of sort of silly laws just to right. get attention, you know, right. the kind of things they know are going to go in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, on, Our official on TV. steak cut you know, is. Yeah. Right. Or not or even, not even that. Or, or, <laughs> or something that is kind of extreme, you know, oh, right yeah. or left. Yeah. You know, something that seems draconian or just, right. you know, that, that kind of weird stuff. Uh, wasn't there I, I one i one example i have is this is like almost six or eight years ago someone had brought up like um married couples could not get divorced within the within the first year of marriage you know that <laughs> someone had pitched oh that law it didn't go anywhere but you know the but you do that kind of thing but it got you're, attention you're getting attention and, and someone writes about it now knowing what we know it feels like you almost got to worry about that a little bit because you don't know what is going to pick up steam and mm -hmm. what everyone's going to get behind. Um, there's, I mean, how do you, how do you separate it? Or do you, or do you trust sort of your electorate to kind of know the difference? Meaning how do I separate the folks who write silly laws? Well, or? Not, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is how do you, 
how do you define them? Do you know the difference between someone who's sort of like a true believer who really thinks that, that what they're writing is real or who's just doing it to get attention and we can spot the difference? Well, I think that comes down to knowing the person. So that's one of the things uh, about the state legislature that I think folks misunderstand in the sense that I cannot go to the state legislature and I cannot change things myself. I can influence, but state legislature is a team sport. I mean, you have to have other team players vote for your legislation for it to pass. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I can just like I declare that this is what's going to happen. And so through that process, I have to make friends uh, across the aisle and I have to get to know people. And after four years, there are there are those representatives who have the reputation of putting forth legislation like that. And when they have that reputation, if they actually happen to have a good bill, it's hard to recognize it as being a good bill because their reputation is not. So it's more of a relationship thing. And I I think that's unfortunately, you know, the bills that that make the headlines in December, because that's the initial bill deadline, um, are the ones that are like that. And so when I write legislation, I try to make sure that my legislation does not get picked up in the headlines in December, because otherwise, then that tells me that I've written something that is kind of kooky. But I mean, yeah, we and we see a lot of sort of straw man and, you know, we see the or boogeyman, you know, critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you think most of us would think, oh, we can write that off. It's we're talking about we're talking about something academic. You know, it's not even mm-hmm. it's not. K through 12, who cares? But you actually get not legislation. It's not, you know, once it's signed and when it's on, once it's on paper, it's not called this or that, but well, you do you, have, you do have, we do have actual laws now that sort of sprang from almost make believe. I mean, right. The, the, the vagueness of it. the writing yeah. of that bill in particularly house bill 1775, it's, it leaves everyone. I mean, Here's the thing, you know, when it comes to laws, you they should be clear, like because police officers and teachers are rule followers. So laws need to be something that they can follow. Mm -hmm. Uh, The vagueness of that bill is just outlandish. So now we have issues of, well, if I teach about the Trail of Tears, is that going to make a student feel bad? And if that makes them feel bad, does that mean that I'm going to lose my job or the Tulsa race massacre or the Osage murders or the land runs? I mean, all of that. Well, all of that is key Oklahoma history. And we have such a turbulent history as a state to not teach those things would be a disservice to generations to come. I thought it was interesting that you could have the word feelings in a law like such a subjective Mm -hmm. thing like what have you ever seen any other law that has the word feelings in it no and that's why (laughs) we we questioned that we debated that all of that and then it was but i mean it kind of got caught up in that whole um take a stand movement that we still see a little bit but it's it's its power over people is starting to wane. But yeah, it's just, and I, I believe honestly that House Bill 1775 needs to be overturned because it's just causing way too much havoc. And the idea that CRT is corrupting our schools, that our schools are, are, are places of indoctrination for our students is just rubbish. I mean, Honestly, if that's how you feel about the schools, you need to go and go to the school and volunteer. You need to talk with the principal. You need to make sure that you are active in your community. And if that is something that you are seeing, then you need to work at it to turn that around. But that's not what is happening. We listen to the national news and people are like, oh, our public schools are awful. They're failing, all of this. But if you ask them about their their student's teacher, oh, I love her. She's wonderful. You know, my school is great. Well, how is that possible? If public schools are failing, how can your school be the one gem? It's, it's more the gems than it is anything so, else. 
what do teachers tell you now? I mean, you have this unique perspective as a former mm, teacher yeah. who you were advocating for these budget issues. I'm sure you're meeting teachers now who just sort of feel like they sort got of attacked on targets the, painted on, yeah, all the, around on them. just on the basis of, of how they live their lives. Like, you know, they're being surveilled or constantly oh, absolutely. watched. You know? And, you know, being a teacher is like teaching in a fishbowl. I mean, honestly, every day I was I was teaching in a fishbowl. You never know what the, the child is going to go home and tell their parents, <laughs> you know, because there there is a, a miscommunication in, in things like the telephone game, you know. Um, but also uh, I had administrators walking in and out of my classroom. I had observers from OSU who were um, music ed students. They were in my classroom daily. Um, I had student teachers. Um, so I, I'm I'm used to that. And I think teachers are in all used to that being being under the microscope, if you will. But it's intensified this year. Um, you know, we just went through a extremely traumatic experience with the global pandemic. And we're not alone. Everyone went through it in every country around the world went through this traumatic experience. And when people go through trauma like that, um, behaviors manifest. And, you know, public school is teaching pack behavior. Honestly, how do you function as an individual in a group of 20 some individuals? And how do you become a community, a classroom with shared beliefs and shared ideas for success? How do you do that? And when you come off of a pandemic where everyone is on their own screen, you've got kids who don't know how to be one of 20 plus children. Hmm. And so that type of teaching that supersedes math and reading because you (laughs) need to teach children how to get along with one another first And I think that's also another reason why I have such frustration with the rhetoric that social emotional learning is detrimental to our society. Can you define that for us? Sure. Social emotional learning is basically teaching uh, teaching kids how to treat others the way they want to be treated. So how did that get mixed in with critical race theory? I have no idea. How did that become one of the, the... Far right boogeyman. I always believe that most of the time we are, uh, people are getting angry over words they hear. So like, right, social. Oh, that sounds like socialism. So that's bad well, or I, something. When that, that was like yeah. just a rebrand. It's kind of like defund the police. Like mm-hmm. kind of bad branding there. Maybe just call it the golden rule. <laughs> right. Well, I'm, I'm sure it's probably you know because you have this academic or psychological theory that has been implemented nationally right mm-hmm. so for some people they probably imagine you're trying to worm your way in somewhere like you're yeah. trying to hypnotize people or something yeah into believing an idea but <laughs> honestly but how, how do you get there but, but i mean what, what, do, nice. what do teachers tell you now when you know this they're tired comes up? that is what they're they're telling me they are tired and the the demands on their time and trying to keep everyone together and trying to keep everyone um, in school and and helping parents who are needing help, too. And but yet also making sure that they're doing what they have to do because of the, the administration. You know, we've got uh, our education system is very much focused on standardized tests. We've got to measure what these kids know. Well, honestly, That is just one means of assessment. And we're so focused on that that we are growing a generation of students who do not have practice in critical thinking. And that is the number one thing that employers are looking for is, can this person that I want to hire, do they have critical thinking skills? Because I can train them on everything else. But do they have that? And because of our focus on standardized tests, we're not meeting the need for our jobs in the future. And but, you know, I I believe education goes more than just job training. Education is lifelong. So then are we raising a generation who will be able 
to lead their next generation, their children? And will they understand what democracy is and value it? And how do they participate in that and keep it going? And that's something that is just, you know, that's overall the puzzle that keeps going on in my head of how do we do that? Yeah. Well, what's, uh, I mean, is there, are there legislative fixes for the, any of the issues we've talked about? Or is it more like maybe the legislature needs to be a little more hands off and sort of back out of some of these things? Well, I think yes to both. Okay. <laughs> so I think that the legislature has decided that they are going to be in the curriculum development uh, business. And honestly, that is not the place of the legislature. The place of the legislature is supporting public ed and supporting higher ed career tech, all of that, and letting those people who are educated and trained in those areas to develop that curriculum. Um, can we be part of the dialogue? Absolutely. I mean, we're working in partnership. So yes, let's talk about it. But when we are line iteming curriculum in the budget, then that goes against what really our, our role is. We held the um, public ed flat this last year. I think it was like 0.4% increase. But that's with inflation concern. That's still a cut. Um, and then we increased uh, higher ed spending for by about 7%. But still, that is minuscule to the need. And when I talk about the need, you know, here's anytime I talk about funding. Okay, number one, I always have the 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 voice that says, well, what we can't just throw money at it, Trish. And, you know, and and my 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 glib answer is like, really, we have we tried that yet? I mean, (laughs) have we have we really tried that? But but honestly, it's not big government. It's not small government. It's just it's like Goldilocks. Just right. Let's let's get it just right. We've got a really good funding formula as a funding formula in general across the nation. We've got a good one. We just it fails because we don't put enough money into the formula. So it doesn't it's not really equitable. And so our rural schools are really suffering because of this. And then we've got several districts that are off the formula because they have high property tax because of the wind farm, Amazon, um, the power plant, those kinds of things. But then how what is the equalization there? And just trying to make sure that we are funding public ed across the state equitably Because when it comes down to it, we need our neighbors in our rural communities to thrive. We need that as a state. And it is not, we also need our urban environments to thrive. But both need to thrive in the the common denominator for that, that thriving is education. And are we preparing our next generation for jobs and for a better future? Or are we diverting them to poverty and prison? So... Educational savings accounts, oh my vouchers, God, no. no, nothing. No. There's not a place for that no. in in your no in our education system. You don't think it, there is no place for that, quite honestly. Because here's the thing: the whole idea of taxes, you know, everyone pays a little, and from that you gain that collective power, and you can do more, you know, with that. And when you start picking that apart. And going, oh, okay, well, no, we're going to now divert that and go to private. Well, number one, we don't have enough private schools to even address the need, uh, number one. Number two, um, you know that the market it controls our society. We live in a capitalist society. So if we put money in a savings account to go to a private school, whatever that amount is, that tuition's going to go up that same amount. That's that's going to happen. So then you're always constantly too short. And then now we get to the point where the folks with means will find a way to make that happen. And the folks without means won't. And now we have a class system of who can be educated and who can't. And that is devastating for our state future. I mean, the fact that in the Oklahoma Constitution, it says that we shall fund public ed. I mean, that's 
right there. So, right there. <laughs> I mean, it, in 1907, they had this idea. Hello. Yes, we need to keep it going. So hypothetical here. Uh, the state's got, what, over $2 billion in savings right now? Yeah. How much of that, if you could just uh, wave a magic wand, uh, would you carve into well, public I education? Would, that... The fund that has $280 million for the mystery company that will come to our state and make everything better again. There is no company coming to our state to make things better again. It, they can't. That is like Superman type of task. Um, so really, we should be taking that money and reinvesting because we do not have the the job force. We do not have the workforce to be able to do the jobs if for that company, whatever company it is that comes. We don't have the workforce for it. We don't have the number of engineers we need now for the companies we have in our state. We don't have the number of nurses we need now for our state. And, you know, and we've lost hospitals over the last 20 years. So, I mean, there, the need is there. We don't have enough teachers so we need to be working at let's get our workforce work built up so that that way when companies come by Oklahoma and go, oh, wow, look, they got a lot of people that are that are trained for work like this. What if we went there? That would be a good place. Was uh, was the Elon Musk uh, Tesla thing, was that a wake up call at the Capitol? Uh, um, when in yes. Tulsa, Austin? Yes, because that was like, okay, the governor's working to try to bring yeah. business to the state. And and it's interesting because, you know, I've, I'm i not alone in thinking that this is kind of outlandish. Um, there are other representatives who think the same thing, and they're not just Democrats, you know. But at the same time, I will say that, you know, the idea that this um, electric car battery company would come to Oklahoma, that was big thing. And it's like, well... I was supportive of it initially because I thought, all right, if this company does come in, they're going to recruit from the region and they're going to recruit their initial workers and then we'll have some time to work up. Um, we'll be behind, but we'll work up. And then when that failed and that went away and that money stayed in that account for the next company, it was like, uh, I don't know. You held our education flat barely raised our higher ed budget. Um, we've got need across the state and we're not even touching that yet. We're awash with cash in our savings accounts. How about this one? If we're just doing hypotheticals, what, what does a, <laughs> we're talking all these fanciful things. Um, what does a, what does a teacher retention incentive package look like to you? Mm. I, mean, outs, I mean, I'm sure people would say, pay raises or you know mm -hmm. the kind of thing you might need to do to avoid another walkout but just to just to keep the teachers we have you know or mm -hmm. get the ones we're graduating from college to stay here right what, what's that incentive package look like well it needs to have a, a pay scale mm -hmm. that is uh comparative to our our region around us because that's the number one reason why teachers leave oklahoma is to go to a state with a higher pay um, so we need to raise teacher pay. Yes. But I think it would also be, could we re look at the, um, salary schedule? So our salary schedule is years of service down one side and an across the top education level. And so everyone knows what everyone makes because they're like, oh, you've got a bachelor's and you've worked here five years. Mm, I know what you make. Um, but could we have a little bit more tiers in there where if you are, if you serve as a mentor teacher in your school, then you get more. So what does a mentor teacher, what additional things do they do? They make sure that they are um, a listening ear for that new teacher. They do um, peer evaluations. They do um, lesson prep. They work on, okay, this is the unit that we're on next. Um, these are the key points. Okay, and so you they're, can putting, use, they're putting They're more putting work, work yes, okay. and they're investing in those teachers. Right now, yeah. they don't get any extra money for that. So what if we worked on that? And, you know, and also we have National Board certified teachers. 
Um, I did not go that route. I went the master's route. But the national board route is very comparable to a master's degree route, but it's it's not reflected in the salary schedule because there was a separate stipend that went to national board certified teachers. That has gone away. So bringing that back or putting it in the salary schedule that they get more like you would if you got a master's. That's important too. But I think the, the next key thing is, you know, it's not just salary. It's working conditions. That if you are required or asked to do more than what your contract states, that you get paid for it. I think that's key because we, um, we want our teachers to be professionals. We should treat them like professionals. And then the last thing, which is a very steep hill to go up, but I think is important, is insurance. Okay. Right now, teachers only have their insurance covered. I, as a state legislator, my whole family is covered by the state of Oklahoma. I think that families should be covered by insurance. And that's a big one because that's a big ticket amount. (laughs) But that's one of those things that, you know, when I started teaching, I I taught for a year in Connecticut before I, I came here. I mean, I... I worked for a publishing firm. I managed a restaurant. I mean, I did a lot of things, you know, because I was trying to figure out what it was like to be a grown-up. And um, I taught for a year in Connecticut. And when I taught there, I did not pay a dime for health insurance. It was all covered by my district. My whole family was covered. I moved to Oklahoma in 2003. I was a part-time teacher, so it was only half-time. I had to pay for insuring my whole family. Because my husband was singing full time, he didn't have an insurer. So it was going to be my paycheck that insured us. Well, I'm looking at the, the, the gals giving me this sheet of paper at the benefits department at the Board of Ed. And I'm looking at this and I'm just like, okay, what is this? And she goes, well, these are the different health insurance uh, programs that you can choose from. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm like, well, what is this dollar amount, the, these things here? <laughs> and she's like, oh, that's how much they cost. And I'm like, meaning that I pay that? <laughs> and she said, yes. And I'm like, per year? And she's like, no, per month. And then all of a sudden I did the math and I was basically making 150 to $200 a month because I was insuring my whole family on my whole paycheck. So things have improved since then. The teacher gets paid, their insurance paid. But I think honestly that if ensuring that teacher's family would go a long way of well, sure. retention. I mean, re, re, retain, what is it? Yeah, retention. Retention, yes. Yeah, but yeah, so now imagine if you had had your kids in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma instead of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. How much more expensive that would have been. Exactly. And, that, and, now, and now it feels like knowing that, knowing there are options out there, seems like, hmm, now you yeah. got people who are maybe putting off having families. Right. You know, and, and having to make those kind of decisions. How does that uh, yeah. compare to, we're, we're always comparing ourselves to the surrounding states. So when we're talking about like incentivizing teachers to either get back in the game in Oklahoma or coming from surrounding states... Uh, I mean, do our surrounding states offer insurance that covers the whole family? Would this be something that like kind of, you know, somebody might eye over the border and be like, oh, dang, Oklahoma just did this. That's a good question. I'm not 100 percent sure the answer, but I think it's it differs from state to state. I know that uh, teacher pay in the region is a moving target. You have to constantly be watching it and it should be a constant increase. I mean, just like anybody's job at a, a private company, you know, you get paid X amount of dollars and then after a certain amount of time, you usually get a raise. I mean, that's, that's what we need for teachers too. There should, be, there should be a raise pretty regularly. And the idea that, you know, we were able to uh, give a teacher raise after the walkout that um, we really haven't made consistent gains since then Mm -hmm. and you know my republican colleagues they love to say oh well we you know the the largest pay raise in for teachers in modern history i'm like yeah but 
now we still need to go forward. We're still last. And so how do we get get out of that spot? But anyway. Well, how, how much uh, we got, how much time we got left? Um, I guess we could. Right. We're, we're just right on the nose there. So, okay. well, wow. I mean, what's, what's some uh, policy that you'd like to see something you're working on for next session? If you win the election, what's, what's the kind of stuff you're. Well, let's see. There's, get through. um, you know, I've con my legislation in the past has always been, it always, it, it comes from conversations with people and, you know, whether it's my TBI bill that came from a conversation with a traumatic brain injury advocate or cybersecurity experts when it came to updating the Computer Crimes Act, um, the license plate bill that basically takes your regular plate in your uh, your um, vanity plate, what is it? personalized plate, that's mm-hmm. what it is, and basically combines their renewal at the same time that came from um, talking with someone at church. I mean, you know, it's, it's amazing where all these conversations happen. And then the last one was um, the opening the geographical boundaries for virtual academies. Um, that came from a meeting with Stillwater Public Schools and the and the other outlying admin from the area. And can you explain that one <clears throat> real quick? Yeah. So um, before this bill, virt- if, if a brick and mortar district offered a virtual academy, they could not recruit students who lived outside of their geographical boundaries. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, so this bill opens that up. So what happened is that you either went in person to a brick and mortar school or you if you wanted to do online, then it was it was epic. Those were the only two. So this allows brick and mortars to compete with epic. And it also allows families a way to ground, let's say they don't live in the geographical boundaries of Stillwater Public Schools, but they are close to Stillwater. So then therefore they could be, um, they could do completely virtual or they could do hybrid, which would be nice as far as like FFA and music and all of those things are concerned. They could do that. And this exists outside of our emergency protocols and pandemics. It's still someone could still have these virtual options. This puts it in statute that they can. Okay. Yeah. There was a little bit of a uh, relaxing of of rules because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. but once that that has ended, so now how do we go forward? And so that came from Stillwater Public Schools conversation. So I have a bill request um, already started right now, which I'm working with um, a friend of mine in the Republican Party to kind of make sure that it's it's bipartisan. But it came from I was at a uh, conference and um, it's Medicaid coverage for uh, pregnant women. So if women are on Medicaid uh, when they have the baby, they are immediately booted off. Medicaid coverage and the child is now covered and um, as a result and I'm well, I don't know if it's a result but it's also part of the problem that we have in our state is we have a very high maternal and infant mortality rate so the bill idea is to extend uh, Medicaid coverage for the mother for the full first year of the baby baby's life so um, that way they can still have medical checkups and um, guide them through any postpartum issues that they might have. Now, there was a task force that the governor put together here, um, and they they came back with the same finding. We need to do this. And I'm like, yeah, you do. And I'm going to put the bill forward because I don't, <laughs> I don't trust the fact that this task force is going to get across the line because I think that's important. And um, I think the it's good for the whole state, but especially rural communities, the women in rural communities who don't have access, really. Well, sure. And I mean, in, in perspective, you're talking even just that one statistic, infant mortality rate. The United States is behind a lot of the developing world. Yes. And Oklahoma is one of the worst in the United States, mm-hmm. which kind of means that there are all these places who are right. better at keeping babies alive than Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And now that's, that we I mean, have a ban against all stats, of, yeah. against all abortions, then how are we going yeah. to support our families? I mean, and how are we going to support people through this process? And um, it's just, it needs to be done. It should have been done a long time ago. 
um, but it hasn't. And from my understanding, it is a application to the federal government to waive the restrictions and to extend it a year. So other states have done it and they've seen gains. They've actually seen positive results by doing it. And so that's that's what I'm looking forward to the most right now. All right. Well, wrapping it up here for anybody uh, listening that doesn't already know how to reach you or find you. What's the what's the best way to get in touch with Representative Ransom? Well, there are a lot of ways, that's for sure. Um, If it is a constituent issue, you can email me at trish.ranson at okhouse.gov. If it is a, uh, Trish, I just need to, to get in touch with you. You can um, find me on social media, House 34 um, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. She's doing even some TikToks. TikTok, yes. <laughs> Bo, you seen any I'm other TikToks? far too mature. <laughs> TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that's a, probably the best way to get to me. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm very open, and I'm very much like if you have an issue you want to talk about, I'm I'm ready and willing to listen, um, especially if it's over a cup of coffee. Uh, or but. you might catch her at uh, one of our uh, breweries. Oh yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. You know, not in the morning, but yes, <laughs> they're not open. <laughs> that's a good thing. <laughs> so, all right, thank you so much for coming in. And uh, good luck with the campaign. Thank you. 